Um, right, so uh, where are we? We're sat here in what I only know to be London's oldest French restaurant on Seven Dials near Common Garden. And uh, I'm sat here with the cartoonist for The Guardian, Mr. Martin Rose. And Martin, the reason I asked you to come on the podcast was because I, I really wanted to meet one of my favourite cartoonists, frankly, and to talk about <laughs> um, the state of political satire yep. in cartooning over the past 10 years. I would like to do a, a minute silence in mourning for the gay hussar, but that wouldn't work on a forecast very well. So tell us a bit more about that place. A- avoid dead air. Well, we would in, in um, if, if the world was a just place and there was a god, we would be doing this in the gay hussar, uh, which closed just over a year ago. It was somewhere where I had been hanging out for about 25 years and where they had a, a gallery of 60 portraits, of caricature portraits of their good and great and not so good and in ungrateful uh, clientele. All done by you? All done by me. I mean, it was a quite extraordinary project in many ways because I did conceive of it as an installation. Um, and I wanted to draw people from the life because, you know, I've been doing this job for a really long time now. And I've always liked the idea of, of drawing people face to face because the act of caricature is an aggressive act. And you know, it, it, it was really interesting drawing politicians because they will claim that they think cartoons are absolutely marvellous. I once drew Anne Widdicombe for a feature for The Spectator and she was saying, oh, cartoons are jolly good. They're such, such jolly good fun. I said, no, they're not. They're assassination without the blood. We're trying to destroy you. This is right. voodoo. This is sympathetic magic. That word magic, the shaman aspect of it's, it. It's the shamanistic yeah. aspect. But that's what art's about. Art is about recreating reality, the reality that pours through our heads all the time. And it's recreating it in safe mode so you can take control of it. The whole point about art is control. It's re-narrativizing things. We tell a story, whether it's in a confessional or a very lengthy novel or to your mates, you take control of the narrative. When you redraw the saber-toothed tiger on the cave wall, you're taking control of that saber-toothed tiger. I'm conscious of the fact that we're getting deep into what cartooning does to the subject and what it means to the, the artist. So let's get back just for a moment to where we're sat here. I mean... It, what I like about it is what I liked about the gay who's are. It is, it is an old London restaurant. Um, you know, you can imagine people in the 50s coming here and thinking, my God, Elizabeth David was right. Olive oil does exist. And, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and it's, it's part of the, the wonderfully rich cosmopolitanism of London. That London has always been an international city. We've always had people coming in from outside. It's been fed by people coming in from outside. It's, you know, it, it is a world city. And, you know, I'm a Londoner born and bred. People ask me where I come from before I go abroad, and I say I come from London. And because I, 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 I'm hoping that when the British state finally collapses under the weight of its own contradictions because of the insanity of Brexit, that um, we can just build a wall around the M25. Actually, the M25 is being generous. Let's say the North and South Circular. Um, <laughs> And uh, we will be open to everybody from around the world, except for people who live in the home counties. If they want to commute in and out, four hours in, four hours out, Israel-Palestine border. Not tired of London, not tired of life. <laughs> it's always good. Can we, can we get a drink at this stage? Absolutely. Could I have a Kia Royale? Apricot, yeah, I'll go with that. Okay. You mentioned the act of drawing somebody as being a very invasive thing, and the, the experience you had portraying Alistair Campbell. I mean, it was, it was, it was a, the whole thing was a weird press anyway, because it was a really dark restaurant. Most people just got on with their lunches, chatted away, and there'd be waiters moving around, they'd be moving around, they'd be eating, things like that, which actually made it a bit of a challenge, which made it more interesting. Whereas Campbell just sat there glowering at me. 
and shouted across the restaurant, you just won't be able to stop yourself from making me look like a really bad person, to which I replied, Alistair, I draw what I see. And it was then I understood the nature of the craft, that because he was responding in such a, a, a visceral and primitive, primal way, he shown me what I was actually doing. I was engaged in a kind of sympathetic magic. I was stealing his soul. And he got it. He got I was stealing his soul. Mm. So you can almost trust Campbell of all your subjects to have worked it out because he was I mean he's he, control for it. As exactly, yeah, yeah, as a spin yeah. doctor, he's yeah. also in the in the role of warping reality. Uh, well the whole point of satire, which caricature is a subset, is to show people who would have us believe they are gods that like us they are metabolizing people mm. and they are as useless and stupid and ugly and mad and beautiful and clever and charming and talented as the rest of us but in the lines of the old jewish joke you know the old jewish mother says they think this he thinks he's so smart well he shits and he's going to die and it's to remind them they should and you know I, when, when i talk about this I, I show that wonderful unjustifiable cartoon done by the great james gilray in about 18 sorry 1785 of Pitt the Younger coming to inform George III about the assassination of the King of Denmark and King of England and his consort are depicted sitting on a two-seater privy having a shit. Lends nothing whatsoever to the cartoon. It does nothing. It doesn't tell you anything about the fate of the King of Denmark. It doesn't tell you anything about anything. Apart from the fact it's funny thinking about the King having a shit because it brings him down to our level. And I want to get onto the scatological element of your cartoons because it's, it's something that I thought had increased over time. You know, the, the more shit things became, the more shit I seem to see in your work. But actually, <laughs> I realised it's not the case. I mean, right up through the Iraq War, it's always been there. It's what makes us human. And I think there is a universal humour guaranteed to make any child on earth under the age of one laugh. And that is this noise, and that is the noise that this disgusting stuff makes as it pours out of our bodies on a daily basis. Now, if we didn't laugh at it, and if we didn't laugh at death and our leaders and our friends and our enemies and all the other things that we encounter during our lives, we would go insane with existentialist horror. Just imagine this stuff pouring out of our bodies on a daily basis and we have enough cognizance and consciousness to recoil from it in horror. And so, as a metaphor for things going bad, things going, being repulsive, repellent, and so on, it's the most valent metaphor we have. When I was working for Time Out in the 1990s, when the Tories under Major were having their, um, their five-year five nervous breakdown, when you had the sleaze and you had back to basics and you had more and more... Tory ministers were either screwing their secretaries or they were stealing money or they were selling owls to Iraq and so on. You know, all and on it went. I did a cartoon of John Major up to his nose in shit, shit creek, without a paddle. And the following week I did another cartoon along the same theme. And the third week I did another cartoon. And the editor phoned me up and said, Martin, I'm beginning to worry about your mental health. Why do you keep on drawing shit? And I said, well, Dominic, if you can think of a better metaphor for this government, please tell me what it is. No, you're right, carry on. <laughs> <laughs> Once you'd reassured them that it was still paint you were using. Yeah, yeah, it's not real. It's art. <laughs> art. What have we got here, Mark? We've got, we've got steak tartar. I'm very fond of steak tartar. <laughs> Where were you on the day that you discovered about the massacre in Paris of Jolly Hebdo? And what went, what went through your mind? It's the obvious question. I was at home in Lewisham. Somebody sent me an email said, have you seen what's happened in Paris? And so I then went online and I saw what was happening in Paris and I was absolutely horrified. Um, I mean, disgusted and 
appalled and horrified. Um, not frightened. Because it was happening... No, 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 because it's the nature of the job. I mean, I've been getting death threats for 25 years. And the death threat, you don't take it seriously until they kill you. Or attempt to. Or attempt to. I mean, you know, death threats by email don't count. Anybody with children's ears sent through the post to your home address. Um, it's, um... There's a lot of bloviating arseholes out there who uh, object all the time to anything which might mildly upset them. And so, you know, this idea that if I am slightly upset, that justifies me in killing you. <laughs> Not seem to understand that killing somebody is the most offensive thing you can do to them. Not do a stupid drawing about their stupid prophet or their stupid god or their stupid country or their stupid leader or whatever. So I, I've never been frightened. Um, but, but shocked and, and disgusted and outraged. Uh, but also recognising that we're just a backdrop. That it's not about cartoons as such. Although cartoons are part of the... part of the, the mix, but it's the same as cartoons were part of the mix in the Holocaust, which they were. There are a reason why people, every time I do a cartoon about the state of... the government of the state of Israel doing something, people will attack me, send me death threats, and say I produced the most anti-Semitic cartoon since the closure of Des Sturmer, is because Des Sturmer carried anti-Semitic cartoons. And now some people may actually think that. Most people are doing it as part of a counter-taunt. All political cartoons, all satire is part of the taunting. You know, the, the clash of ideas amongst human beings is expressed in a very basic and primal way. In the same way as, you know, baboons will bear their asses at each other when they have a confrontation. We will taunt each other. And me doing a rude cartoon about Netanyahu or Osama bin Laden or Donald Trump is a taunt. And people will counter taunt by threatening to kill me or saying they've been offended and I should be arrested or telling me to just to fuck off because I'm a cunt, which is what they do. It's become more peculiar in the last 10 years. And I think it's not because it's any different. The Nazis had a death list of cartoonists, British cartoonists, who were going to be shot on sight if they invaded. Mm. Um, now it's the quantity and the fact that it's global right. and it's because of the internet. And I think the internet is one of the worst things that's ever happened to humanity because they provided us with an externalised id and we need to close it down. We miss the cats for three weeks, but we get over it. We have to come back to that point. <laughs> um, first of all, I'd like to say cheers in memory of those lost, but also the fact that we're here. Mm. So, cheers to that. Sort of come to a head even more recently with the syndicator cartoon for the um, New York Herald Tribune. Atunis, I think is his name. That's right. And you wrote a piece about this. Yeah. I mean, this, is, this, is, this has been part... This has been held up as evidence of things are getting worse and worse. Actually, no. This is another indication of the crippling stupidity, caprice and cowardice of the people who own and run newspapers. <laughs> And this, uh, and, and I, actually, I actually said in that article in The Guardian, you know, when people talk about uh, freedom of expression and how governments are constantly preventing people from freely expressing themselves, actually, most newspapers are not closed down by governments, they're closed down by their proprietors. Mm. <laughs> most articles saying something are not prevented by evil secret policemen, they're prevented by editors. <laughs> um, for capricious reasons. And... 
I'm very proud to call myself a visual journalist. I'm very proud to be a journalist. Journalism is a wonderful thing. It's also thus like people. It's also a terrible thing. There are some appalling people in journalism. There are some brilliant people in journalism. Um, the idea that journalism is the summit of human free expression is absolute bullshit. <laughs> I mean, it genuinely is the worst kind of self-serving garbage. Mm. But um, the the oeuvre of Richard Littlejohn mm. is up there with Jonathan Swift. Um, is 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 not really a goer. Right. It's not. It's it's yeah. it's, it's not going to hold water in the uh, in the ultimate Tupperware party of posterity. As I, you know, we, I, I, I've been working for Index on Censorship for 20 years. I'm always up there to lend my support to any struggle for free expression to against censorship and that kind of thing. But as I sometimes say to my, my, my comrades, uh, in this particular struggle, by the way, how many people were there at the candlelit vigil outside Spandau prison? when they hanged Julius Stryker, who was, of course, a journalist, because he was the editor of Der Sturmer, the Nazi hate sheet. There were absolutely none, because he was a war criminal. And not everything that's published needs to be defended. Quite a lot of it needs not to be published. And, you know, I think people should be allowed to say whatever they want, whatever they choose, whenever they feel like it, but actually nobody else need listen. Journalism is understood by those who've done it even for a short period of time to be a rather thankless profession but for a cartoonist in particular it's even harder it seems because there's a sense in which the cartoonist is it's not essential to the cause of free press but, but this this is the, I mean, the, thing, the thing about that argument i mean the new york the new york times um farrago is such a preposterous kind of mobius strip of insanity because none of it you know you look at it and it just makes no sense. Right. Somebody from a, a syndicate, syndication agency, picks up a cartoon which has already been published. We don't know what we don't know who the editor was. They haven't been named. They haven't been let go, so far as we know. They've been sort of re-educated in some strange New York Times way. As a consequence of their editorial misjudgment, they dropped all business with the syndication agency, which will probably go bankrupt as a consequence. They then drop all cartoons, although the cartoonists they dropped, Pat Chappet and so on, weren't responsible for this cartoon. It was an internal editorial decision. Yeah. So what the New York Times should have done, it should have closed itself down. And, and it's just the screaming hypocrisy of self-righteous liberals, uh, which is something I've, been, <laughs> I've encountered throughout my career. And, and, um, and really, it is so preposterous that you can't even recruit it as part of the armory in, in dealing with genuine um, denial of freedom of expression, apart from saying, look at those idiots over there. Yes. Far more worrying, people like Rob Rogers, um, who, uh, who worked for the, uh, the paper in Pittsburgh, been working there for 20 years, and you know just gets kicked out um, after 20 years because he, they, they won't run any of his Trump cartoons because the new proprietor is a huge Trump supporter. Um, but then again, you know, that's the nature of the press. It, it is, to a large extent, because it's completely financially unviable, uh, it is a plaything of rich idiots, but it has always been thus. The first time I was let go from a national newspaper was in 1988. I've been working for... Today newspaper and then Sunday today, and I, I was doing 
on a shift basis, I was doing uh, personal finance cartoons for The Guardian. We all got to start somewhere. Yeah, so I was, you know, just 29. And I'd go in on a shift basis and I'd illustrate whatever they had and they had a gap in the copy. And it wasn't very much. But it was, it was something. I was in The Guardian. It's pretty cool. Um, and they ran me up one day and said, Oh, hello, Martin. Yeah, we've just had Neville Brody redesign the paper. It's looking absolutely fantastic. But the thing is, on the first of finance pages on Saturday, they... There isn't, going to be, there isn't going to be room for a cartoon anymore. I said, okay, so um, what are you going to have instead? Well, we've got this wonderful new creative use of white space. I mean, Neville's got this vision about you know, creative. <laughs> so you're replacing me with a, with a blank space? Blank space. I wouldn't yeah. put it like that. Well, how would you put it? Yeah, we're replacing you with that. <laughs> In the hierarchy of newspapers, and for God's sake, if there's anything more hierarchical outside of a troop of baboons than a newspaper, I'm yet to see it. Um, there is this idea, there's the columnists. Who are sitting up there on the height of Parnassus, drinking sherry schooners full of gravitas with cabinet ministers and dandy, and then right down deepest pit of hell in the servant's kitchen, drinking a half bottle of Mackerson and eating a stale pork pie of the cartoonist. And that's as it should be. We are the outsiders. We are the oasis of anarchy in the in the serried ranks of the typeface. You know, soon. What is the hardest? caricature you've ever found yourself tasked with rendering there are various levels to this i mean i've done i've done a a lot of public drawing not just in the gay who's are but you know I, I go to cartoon festivals and i draw anybody who asks me to draw them and there was a festival in rathdrum in ireland in the mid 90s where i'm sat in the town square for about six hours mm. drawing anybody who came up to me they in exchange for a pint of guinness and um so people came up with their Down syndrome kid. I can't work. And said, will you, will you draw him? And I said, of course I will. And I did a, the most flattering portrait of anybody since Holbein's portrait of Anne of Cleese. Because I didn't want to upset the kid. I didn't want to upset the parents. That was the worst. I mean, that, that was the difficult. Because that's not my job. That's my, my job is to bring out, is to exaggerate things in a yeah. cruel way. And I, yeah. and I wasn't going to do that. And also to take the vain and powerful and serve them a slice of humble pie. Exactly. It's a, it's fl- a comfort, it's comforting the afflicted and afflicting the comfortable. Exactly. So I, all, I, yeah, yeah, exactly. And I always punch up. I never kick down. So apart from that, it's, it's not a question of embarrassment or difficulty or, or, or anything like that. It, 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 it's a question of actually technical difficulty. And there have been occasions when you just don't get it. You just don't... You just don't get the person in a few lines, which you should be able to do. When Theresa May became Prime Minister, I was doing a cartoon and I was working on it over the weekend. And I suddenly thought, I can't draw the Prime Minister. I'd drawn her before, but not very often, because she was a big player in the sort of wonderful Nick Clegg, David Cameron, George Osborne playing, which I'd been portraying for the previous five years. And it just wasn't her. I, I, I just knew it wasn't her. I wasn't satisfied with it. And then I... I dropped her eyes fractionally down her face and suddenly it was hurt. And there's a weird kind of transubstantiation when you suddenly, yes, I've got it. Yes. And that, and, that, and that is something I don't understand, but I know how it works. And because you know how it works, it's never quite good enough if it's not quite good enough. If it's not perfect, actually. So, people I've had real problems in drawing... Ed Miliband. Ed Miliband. I didn't know where to start and I didn't know where to stop. 
Well, how about Wallace? Well, the, the thing is, there is honour amongst cartoonists. Peter Brooks got that. That's Peter's. You don't touch it. So when I got um, Cameron as Little Lord Fauntleroy, it's very obvious, but that was mine. Nobody else did that. And Steve Bell spent, you know, two years trying to find another way of drawing Cameron that he finally came up with the condor. Which drove Cameron insane. Had to get that yeah, page yeah, removed yeah. from the papers every morning. Yeah. I mean, that to me is the aim of the cartoonist completely mm. hitting the bullseye, isn't it? Sarkozy, when uh, Plontu in Le Monde mm. would draw Sarkozy getting shorter and shorter. Every time he drew them shorter, Sarkozy would ring up the entry of Le Monde and say, How dare! You must stop this cartoonist doing this on the front page of Le Monde. And Plontu would draw him shorter until he was just a head and feet. <laughs> <laughs> we, 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 are, we are cruel playground bullies. That's all we do. Yeah. Somebody's got to do it because these people think they're gods. So, what materials do you use first of all as your go-to your staple route one and then things that you've sort of acquired maybe recently things that you're thinking about using my default setting is i am a line artist i love line i love cross hatching and very early on i realized that the best paper to draw on was bristol paper because it's nice and smooth and shiny and it doesn't bleed and that kind of thing and so that's my default surface to work on. I began by just colouring in my black and white drawings, and then I got bored with that. Essentially, the history of my career is me getting bored with stuff and trying something different because it's boring to do it the way you were doing it before. So I then realised if you use gouache, it reacts in a really weird chemical way with Bristol paper. I mean, it, it doesn't start smoking. <laughs> be great if it did. Uh, but... It will begin to break down the surface, which I presume is some kind of ceramic, very, very thin layer of ceramic surface on the, on the bristle paper. And you can then put down layers of gouache with some watercolour in the Winsor & Newton range, which reacts with the paper in a different way, so it actually sets more clearly so if you want to do shadowing you, you put that down first and then you put and then you can wash it all off and you can just leave a trace of what was there before and you just keep on hammering away so 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 you know i've got five hours to do this stuff i will draw it in pencil just to get the composition i'll then vaguely ink it to set the composition and then as often as not i will just cover the in, the entire area in a wash and a, a different wash and then see what happens what about electronic erasers sorry <laughs> so, a sort of a razor capsule you put into the head of what is effectively a spinning eraser with a motor inside you put a double a battery in, press the button you have this brilliant machine that will get it exact for you i am beyond horrified <laughs> <laughs> But I want to tell you about the best cartoon I've seen in the last five years. What is the best cartoon you've seen in the last five years? Two years ago, I was invited to judge um, the uh, Mahmoud Kahil cartoon competition uh, in Lebanon, which is named after Mahmoud Kahil. He was a Lebanese cartoonist who um, died in exile in London about 20 years ago of natural causes, which is nice. <clears throat> and I know his daughter, and they launched this um, cartoon competition for the Arab world. And 
No. She asked me to be a judge, so I went over to Beirut. Judge this stuff. There were five different categories, graphic novels, comic strips, editorial cartoons, um, illustration and children's illustration. And this stuff was absolutely phenomenally wonderful. I mean, it was just, you know, we, we have, to get back to what we were talking about earlier on, you know, in our, in our Western complacency, you have the idea that, you know, ooh, the Arab world, they just kill cartoons. Of course they don't. That's a, that's a bunch of nutters in the Arab world, just like we have a bunch of nutters in the Western world. And cartooning is part of the journalistic and satirical and human condition of almost every society on earth you can think of. And the wealth of talent from across the, the Arab world is extraordinary. And, and the winner was this guy called, um, if, I can, if I can get the, the Arabic pronunciation right, uh, Sharif Akhalah, who is an Egyptian who now lives in the Emirates. And I said to him, what's it like living in the Emirates? Oh, it's so great. I fled Mubarak, but I can do cartoons about whoever I like. It's so fantastic. Well, what about the people who run the Emirates? Oh, damn, so stupid. We had a bit of a laugh about that. But he'd, he'd done this cartoon, which he'd submitted to, to the competition, of two visions of the Middle East, one of which was of a desert. And they were jigsaw puzzles. And so it's great big clunking jigsaw pieces. And the other one was a city. So it had a few minarets, but it had skyscrapers, TV aerials, a great writhing mass of humanity. And it was made of little tiny, delicate, filigree-like pieces of um, jigsaw puzzle. And there's a member of ISIS trying to cram the big bits into the little tiny spaces. Yeah. And it was just genius. And he won, and I, and you know, at, at, at the at the gala awards ceremony in Beirut um, in spring of last year. And I said to him, you know, Sharif, that was that's that's the best cartoon I've seen in the last five years. And he burst into tears, which was great. I mean, I, I didn't want him to burst into tears, but you know, it's, it's, uh, but you know, we need to recognise and understand that we have this wealth of talent for wrangling reality in, in, in into visual joy. Because it's joyous, because it's satirical, because it takes a piss, and it also explains things that make sense of things, and it makes us laugh, and that's where the joy comes from. Um, but just as joyous, actually, um, that night, because this is one of the best things I've ever seen in my life, at the end of the gala awards ceremony, after the ABBA tribute band from Essex had come on, I then went with the other judges and the winners to a, a bar off Hamra, which is the main drag which goes into West Beirut, which is the fastness of Hezbollah. And this is a bar run by a communist Saudi hipster. There's a reason why he has it in Beirut, not in Riyadh, because he's a communist and he's a hipster. And it's a bar. I can't picture those things coming to No, 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 anyway. Communist, it, Saudi, hipster. Yeah. and I'm, we drank, I'm sure he had a beard. Yeah, he had a beard. And we drank lots of raki and we <laughs> had a great time. And then I saw one of the best things I've ever seen in my life, which was young Arab comic creators dancing to other young Arab comic creators singing The Clash's Rock the Casbah in Arabic. Is there anything that could have given you more hope given the last 10 years than that? Nothing. Nothing. It was, it was, Jackie, it was, it was one of the most joyous things I've ever seen in my life. Let's pour another glass. Yeah. yeah. Toast that. <laughs> Martin Rosen, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Jack. Thank you.